1: is dave hand and there will be no encore welcome to episode 321 it's 321 go no encore a music podcast it's uh, wednesday night we're recording a day early but you're still getting it on good friday guys happy good friday to you religious or otherwise uh great with patrick it's good friday apparently how you doing great man? friday
2: dave great friday i'm guessing i'm feeling good it's been um it's been one of those days where it feels like summer is is nearly upon us. I smelt the smell of um, freshly cut grass for the first time in a long time, Dave, today. It was a bit warmer, you know, it just felt like there was something in the air. Um. So yeah, good, I guess. I also like this kind of, we're recording on Wednesday, we're also recording slightly later, because you've just finished your shift, so it's kind of, it's got a slight late night vibe to it, which I always like in recording, do you know what I mean? It feels like we should have yeah, Femme no. d'Argent playing under us or something, just... Go I'm full. Sure I'm, I'm sure I'm <laughs> Adrian Kenji that. phone show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, coming up, should uh,
1: rainbow-coloured crosswalks be banned? I presume that's the kind of fucking story of the day on that kind of radio show. Not this kind of radio show. No. Uh, we're very inclusive, I think. Um, so, yeah, it's fun recording a late-night podcast at 8 o'clock in the evening when I have to work at 7 the next morning. It's great. I really like it. I like being. I like having no free time. It's fun. Um, you had free time that's this the week spirit. though huh? it is the spirit you had free time this week you went to an actual pop concert uh, I should note by the way sorry this episode top 5 late bloomers is our top 5 this week it's people who achieved musical success or credibility or something or other later in life than the standard norm it yeah. might be just north of 30 I guess we'll find out and that's because Father John Misty has our album review he kind of went through the motions for a while before finding himself later in life. But has he found himself on his new record? I, I don't know. We'll find out later on. But the most important thing is patreon.com slash noencore if you want to support this increasingly unsteady
2: ship as it meanders <laughs> off course yeah, keep all the time. Craig and gig tickets as he returns to the fray.
1: Yeah, let's get to it, man. You went to a pop concert. Is this your first pop concert in two years? It was Sparks. It was in Vicar Street. Tell us all about it.
2: It felt like my first pop concert, but it was actually my second gig in seven nights, Dave. I was at Hayden Thorpe the week before on the Sunday. I've done to two 12. Sunday evening uh, Yeah, I forgot to mention it last week and just an opportunity didn't present itself. Um, that was a much smaller kind of affair in the Workman's. It was great as well. Um, Hayden Thorpe and then. Russell Mayle of Sparks, it's just kind of, it's ruined me for, if you're a male vocalist who doesn't sound like a a German baroness from the 1800s, I don't want to know at this point. Do you know what I mean? Sparks were great. It was was a huge crowd. It was sold out. It was also fully masked, I guess, on their ask. At their request, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which was totally fine, of course. And they're incredibly two gentlemen in their seventies now, which, I mean, you might think it would Ron Mail, although he does seem the same since like the 1970s where he's just kind of does the whole stony face thing sits behind the keyboard um and then Russell is just like an absolute dynamo I mean he just is incredible huge energy the tunes were incredible um I guess there was a kind of a lot of excitement because of postponements, but also that documentary about Sparks uh, came out in the last year or so, which has just reignited people's passion for that kind of weird, quirky band. They've got so many great, strange, funny, catchy songs. And it was just, yeah, it was kind of joyous. I really enjoyed it. Um, and they seemed like, re- I think it was the first night of their European tour. It was, and, yeah. Yeah, the standing ovation at the end went on for... 15 minutes, and they no were like, way. the what two is this? of Sorry, them, what, is it? what is this? The Cannes Film Festival. It was crazy. My hands were actually sore by the end of it. And I was like, <laughs> do you know what? This is brilliant. I could do this all night. But after about like 12 minutes, I was just like, my bus is coming soon. <laughs> 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 but like, even Ron Mail was smiling. Like, he broke character. And they seemed like they were. They did not want to leave to a point where it was like, we have to keep tapping if they don't leave. <laughs> but yeah, they deserved it. It was a good show. And I felt, I was kind of a bit apprehensive going in just because it was, you know, that kind of surreal thing of like re-entering the fray, as I said. Um, but I enjoyed it. I think, uh, I think I'm ready to re-enter the world, Dave.
1: Well, you got Primavera oh, coming moments. up, so, they you know, yeah, good time. Um, the, Spark put up a photograph on their social media accounts oh, yes. of them <laughs> taking a selfie with the crowd. And I zoomed in and I found Craig on the balcony in about 0.5 seconds. seconds. Um, yeah. Even though, like, it was a big blurred outline, looked like a David Lynch character. Um, but I found you pretty quickly and I put it up my Instagram story and people what
2: thought was, it was very funny. What was your method how did you find me so quickly? You just had a sense about it, or you thought, I know I knew, this guy's outline, I know this guy's where he's going to go in the venue. <laughs> I, I
1: knew you were on the balcony because you put up a Twitter video the night before or something, or a photo, right. um, and it looked like a balcony shot. So I just saw the thing, I was in work, and I literally just like did the pinch zoom, and I went straight to the middle of the balcony, and kaboom, there you were. I was like, there that's last I said, that has to be him. So I like, screenshot
2: this, put it into the WhatsApp group, and said, is this you? And it's very impressive it because you, can, you can't actually see my face in it because no, I've got can't. the mask on and whatever way the, the fidelity of the photo is it kind of looks like I think I hold I myself like an indie Rorschach you can mm-hmm. kind of see my hair and stuff but just the face is totally obscured and um, you got it well done buddy yeah it I wasn't was, quite um, of it, it was something
1: of the born identity so it was um, did they play So May We Start from Annette yes they did
2: they <gasps> opened with that they opened oh, with it yes yeah. oh,
1: Oh, God, I wish I went. Yeah, gee, what a song. They were full,
2: like, theatrical, you know, crowd-pleasers. Yeah, it's such a great opener as well. They played a couple of songs from that. Yeah, great. Really good.
1: Well, I'm glad you had a good time, man. Thanks, Um, dude. But but has there been good times in the world of music news? I don't know. Let's find out. Adam, make the noise, please.
0: (laughs) You heard about the good news
1: Started spilling all over my words there And somehow went into some kind of weird Belgian accent or something I don't know, I don't even know what it I was going It just sounded
2: like Zippy, it always does It always or does Bane. like
1: Zippy from Rainbow Or Bane, who is apparently the same person And like, uh, yeah, I think almost, most of my impressions tend to veer into that kind of direction The Ryan Toppery one as well You know, I mean Your Tubbs is very good <laughs> Can you give us a lot of at is. some points. Uh, no, at I feel like oh, I'm on the spot because it it's just to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, you know, know uh, <laughs> no, 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 it's not even it's not it's not come up. It's not. Uh, no, it's all very like, you know, what's that kind of um what, like, he barks, you know, he kind of like, you know, He's he, he, yeah. he's got some kind of
2: weird cadence, but who doesn't? Um, he's a two-bit entertainer, is what you're trying to say. Whoa, uh,
1: I won't have that kind of sacrilegious <laughs> oh, talk about sorry. Ryan Tuberty on my show, Craig. Uh, Ed Sheeran, however, I will, I will have Ed Sheeran on the show, in a manner of speaking, because he was on someone else's show. He was on Newsnight last week, so we talked about Ed Sheeran, the end of his court case, but he had more to say. And what he had to say, I thought was quite eye opening let 's have a listen to Ed in typically formal conversation with a newsnight hack
0: <laughs> but how are you going to assure that in the future I mean is it going to be you 've got to record your sessions when you 're making music we do I do that I do that since uh, <laughs> what 's mad and this is actually uh, so I started doing it from photograph started filming every single session for my stuff so i would film every single session for as a record for for my for my album yeah because i'd be like i don't want to have this situation happen again so now i just film everything everything's on film and we've had sort of uh claims come through on songs and we go well here's the footage and you watch and you'll see that there's nothing there i mean there's the george harrison quote where he says he's scared to touch the piano because he might be touching someone else's note and there's definitely a feeling of that in the studio sometimes if you I personally think the best feeling in the world, the best feeling is the euphoria around the first idea of writing a great song. Like the first spark where you go, oh, this is mm. special, we can't spoil, this is, this, this is amazing. But that feeling has now turned into, oh wait, let's stand back for a minute, what, mm. like have we touched anything, you know, and it's, it does, you find yourself in the moment second guessing yourself. It's never about the... the conversation around all of this is always about money it's not about money it's not about money this is just this is about heart and honesty it's not integrity it's, yeah, yes it's not about like win or win or win or lose we had to go to court you know it, we had to Stand up for what we thought was right.
1: Let's see Sonic Architect Adam taking some notes there uh, in terms of the old recording process. Not about money though. Says man with a net worth of two hundred million dollars. Um,
2: what do you think, Craig? I'm liking this side of Edge, to be honest. You know, he it's comes very, across fairly
1: likable, doesn't he? In this
2: kind yeah, of yeah, like matter of fact, and I think knowledgeable, just, insightful. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, Craig, charming, a bit sexy as well. Do you know, He's kind sexy. of stamping yeah, his yeah. authority. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do worry that having to record every single session, musical session, um, you do might suck some of the magic out of the process. Like at this point, if you're Ed Sheeran, are you just kind of looking at it like, Jesus, like what have I become? This machine I'm now a part of. Like, how can you get anything creative done when you're doing that level of second guessing and kind of essentially legal work around everything that's going on? I mean, it doesn't really. I mean, there's cameras on him a lot of the time anyway, so maybe he's comfortable, but I can't... It doesn't really set the mood for the next masterpiece, Dave.
1: You don't think this makes him the new Prince, no? It's a bit boring for you.
2: Well, Prince... Yeah, Prince recorded himself because he he had so many, many ideas that he just wanted to capture the magic and be spontaneous. Ed Sheeran's recording himself in case he stumbles upon someone else's work. And also, <laughs> I don't really know what the evidence there is. Do you know what I mean? Because... Surely it's the footage would be of him coming up with melodic ideas or working out chord structures. But if he has a song lodged in his brain that he's heard two weeks before, and then he just starts humming that, there's not going to be any ready link on the video footage between the two of them. So he can just go like, there, you see it? I didn't like start playing it. Do you know, I didn't like call up the audio clip. I don't really know how that... I guess he's just being uber cautious um, which he clearly has to be considering the cases the ridiculous cases that have been around him but it doesn't seem watertight to me. He's got a far bigger legal team than I do, of course. Yeah. Um,
1: well, there's also the possibility that Johnny McDade could just steal someone's music, hand it to Ed in a nightclub car park, and then they go to the studio and I film that. that idea. Should note, yeah. by the way, for the record, we are not accusing Ed Sheeran or Johnny McDade of stealing anyone's music. So, you know, uh, triumphs of adversity.
2: Ed's legal team. <laughs> Stand down. Probably
1: listening right now. Stand down, Sheeran LLC. But it did... No, he,
2: I was just, yeah, sorry, you go ahead. I've got I was just going to say he, tangent. Did,
1: he did come across very like, oh yeah, fucking, maybe Ed ain't so bad in that clip.
2: Yeah, yeah. Maybe he's, maybe the next album with that kind of context and we'll see it in a totally different light. Or maybe it'll just be a bunch of hacky rip-offs, yeah. Dave.
1: <laughs> Probably will be. Uh, speaking of hacky rip-offs, um, is this a hacky ripoff if you cover your own dad's famous Seems song? a bit harsh. I don't know. Do you I, do I, it for Ukraine, Dave? I was just looking for a link, Craig. Okay, I was just trying to do a link. That's all, you know. But Craig has rightly censured me. Uh, we talked recently on the show about James McCartney of mm. the Beatles fame, and he Wings was, fame. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, big fan of uh, of of his of his dad's music, um, as we discussed on what was the top five. I just remember laughing quite a lot. It was children of offspring. musicians, sir. Yeah. yeah, musical offspring. Good top five. If, if you haven't heard, it, go back and check that one out. Because yeah. Craig's. Craig's James McCartney rundown is, uh, is 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 just audio for the ages. Um, the
2: materials right there.
1: So Julian Lennon the son of John Lennon, has performed Imagine for the very first time live to help raise money for, as Craig says, Ukraine. So, of course, good cause. Dave deserved to be wrapped on the knuckles there for trying to do a a bit of a dig of an intro. It's, It's for a good cause. He performed an acoustic rendition of the song in a room surrounded by candles and said, today, for the first time ever, I publicly performed my dad's song. Imagine, the song reflects the light at the end of the tunnel that we're all hoping for. Now, you might be wondering, listener, well, what does that sound like? Have a listen. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill
0: or die for.
1: I know religion, too. Imagine all the people live. may say he's a dreamer, Craig, but he's not the only one. It's Julian it's Lennon there, uh, performing Imagine, one of the worst songs of all time, I would say. Um, so he did this for Stand Up For Ukraine campaign, fundraising, broadcast. He said, I'd always said the only time I'd ever can sing singing Imagine would be if it was the end of the world. Uh, but the war in Ukraine is an unimaginable tragedy, he says. As a human, as an, as an artist, I felt compelled to respond the most significant way I could. Discussing the song, he said, within this song, we're transported to a space. where love together and this become our reality if but for a moment in time did that happen to you there on that clip which also had some weird audio buzzing but that's the performance they uploaded sorry
2: he did sound very like his dad which was like there's that moment of like um yeah because i don't listen to a lot of julian lennon's original material um i mean i suppose in fairness to him he has spent all of his adult life trying to it's that thing of like trying to stay away from his kind of father's legacy but also he is a you know a musician so there's that weird thing of like eh, you could have just become an accountant or like even a painter or you know what I mean but um I'd say this was pretty tough for him to do maybe he's kind of made peace with his dad's legacy and the whole thing of course was that he didn't see much of his dad growing up I think it was more Sean Lennon um that had that got like you know enlightened good parent John Lennon towards the end, whereas um, Julian, I guess, was kind of in the midst of Beatlemania. He was a little kid, and the relationship that his mother had with John Lennon didn't work out, and all that kind of stuff. So he he's had a really bittersweet you know, post-debt relationship with John Lennon. So it's probably a bit of a choker for him doing this. Um, yeah, I, I agree that it's it a is. terrible song <laughs> in the well, same I'm glad, breath. Yeah. I'm surprised
1: I got no pushback on that. Um, elaborate I, further.
2: No, I, I, like, I could, I could saw any number of brilliant solo John Lennon songs, but I just, the mawkishness of it, the lyrics, I just, it, it never worked for me combined with the video of like, man in White Mansion at the grand piano talking about no possessions mm. and I know what he was <laughs> (laughs) going for but he's done a lot better stuff um I I like a bit of the cynical in my John Lennon material um but that's just me well despite my own cynicism
1: I do think that this is actually a wholesome news story and I think fair enough and it's perhaps like quite nice those moments in, in some respects you talk about the idea of conflict and maybe kind of finding some kind of bond maybe you know years down the line when he's not around and I can't stand over that and mock it and I certainly won't but what I will say is uh, you talk about you, you talk about your John Lennon's, you know uh, your Paul McCartneys. I think your we Ringo's. can all agree your Ringo stars, uh, your George Harrisons. Uh, I think we can all agree a much more sophisticated songwriter than all four of those men combined is Dave Mustaine of Megadeth fame. And Craig has selected a story this week that um, rather takes the piss.
2: Dave Mustaine's mega piss, Dave. Was the headline <laughs> I went for as I scrambled together a few n- news stories yesterday. Um, he was talking on stage about how he's a pretty big rebel um, and he's claimed that he once urinated on a bathroom floor in the White House. Does it get any cooler than that?
1: I thought it was the Oval Office. I misread this then and that's a lot more rock starry. I mean, doing it on the bathroom floor, I mean, it's a bathroom... You know, like it's You thought he happen. literally
2: went into the Oval Office and started pissing on like the carpet? <laughs> I've had a very long like, working day and I just <laughs> scanned the
1: story in passing and I thought if that was something that could happen. Who would have been In front of ben? like
2: a portrait of like Kennedy or something. He's just like he whipped it out. Kennedy'd yeah. probably be into that. Um I
1: don't know. I mean I'm not saying it would be a, a the right thing to do, but
2: well, it happened all the way back in 1992, so um, this is the Clinton? most Radio Nova of... Yeah, Clinton. Which well, okay. you'd think kind of like... Well, in
1: that case, I mean, Craig, they're that all a fucking den of iniquity. Anything could
2: have happened in there. <laughs> Clinton definitely would have been into it. Um, yeah, but it doesn't really feel like at the time Clinton was seen as like, you know, the kind of the saviour coming in from the Democrats. I mean, it wasn't like it was Reagan in there. Uh, but yeah, discussing it, he was, he was taking part in this Rock the Vote campaign. Um, he was saying to fans in Arizona last Sunday that it was something of a fuck you which I guess it was yeah he said um, to quote I want you guys to know that I've lived through a lot of different eras in the United States and seen different things and one thing that makes me the most proud of everything here in our country is you guys the way that you are handling yourselves and the way that um, we're doing that like as a metal community which is fair enough he says he's proud to represent them and then he says when I went up to the White House he was on horseback or something I was so proud to be able to go up there and say fuck you you think we're stupid we are not stupid by the way when I went into the White House I went into the Royal whatever the fuck it's called White House bathroom it's not the Royal bathroom and I peed on the floor I had to I
1: had to. <laughs> I had to. He sounds like he's like, like 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 they're taking the shaking gun out of his hand at that moment. Um, yeah. Dave Mustaine has shaking always something. been he's always been a conflicted person. I would say he's rather uh, you know ingloriously buried in the Metallica documentary, some kind of monster, and he's had a lot of demons. You know that shouldn't be dismissed. But he's also kind of he's made a bit of a rod for his own back with kind of you know cavalier statements like this and thinking he's like you know in the second biggest metal band of all time and. I think his mouth gets him in a lot of trouble, Greg. And in this case, a different kind of mouth. Oh, yeah, God, do you what think- the fuck did I just say? <laughs> Jesus Christ.
2: <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't even know. Do that you think... Even, that doesn't I even have make any question. sense. I have a question. Do you think this is a case of him, like, retrofitting... Him just kind of missing the bowl or the <laughs> urinal yes. and being like, you know what? I'm using this.
1: <laughs> 100%, yeah. Technically, no it yeah. became an act of defiance. But uh, th- th- I just feel sorry for the poor cleaner that had to clean Like, like, th- like. Didn't, I know, yeah. Bill Clinton it's, isn't cleaning it. Oh, actually, then again, one hundred percent. I mean, again, all kinds of shenanigans went on there. I assume, allegedly, sue us. Congratulations are in the order to a bunch of different musicians this week for different reasons. First yeah. up, my friend, Stuart Braithwaite of Mogwai fame. Interviewed the band twice. Uh, wouldn't call him the most... Uh, loquacious of storytellers because he tends to select his words carefully and not say many of them but he is very very sound uh, he's announced that he's uh, bringing out a memoir it's going to be called Spaceships Over Glasgow good Mogwai. title good title Mogwai and Misspent Youth coming out on the 1st of September covering his time in Mogwai his early love for the likes of Sonic Youth my buddy Valentine Jesus and the Mary Chain his formative live encounters with Nirvana and The Cure he says he's immensely proud of it uh, the process of researching and writing has been challenging but one I've really enjoyed it's incredibly exciting to be able to share it to, with the world, which is a very generic statement. So he kind of made up for that a little bit on Twitter when he said that the book was about his teenage idiocy, life in general, gigs and playing in Mogwai. I will read this book. What do you think?
2: Um, I think you will read this book, yeah. And um, let me know how you get on and I might read it <laughs> too, actually, because he is he is a very funny man and he's seen a lot. And actually, the thing of like him being selective with his words and interviews and stuff probably makes for quite a good writer. So, yeah, I'd say this could actually be good, jokes aside.
1: Well we'll find out Craig is also on the harmonious music beat beyond this uh, tell us of good tidings, would you
2: yeah um Brittany baby one more time um included it just for the headline Britney strangerer's nice work yeah um she's having her third child she announced it on Monday on Instagram um newsworthy I guess because um, it came out you know she's since been released from her conservatorship, which I'm now saying correctly nailed it after about ten news stories. Um, that she was put on birth control and she basically was was forbidden from having any more children, which was one of the more shocking things that came out from her testimony. Um, she's now in a stable relationship and she's having another child and she seems very happy and we wish her well. And that's basically that. Mm-hmm. And then I guess finally... Brittany. Yeah, congrats, Brittany. And then in terms of family stuff as well, Jack White, who has a new album out this week, which I haven't listened to, which kind of says a lot about his releases recently, but he had another big moment. He... Um, did not get married in a big cathedral by a priest. Yay! Hotel Yoruba reference. Um, He proposed to and then married Olivia Jean, his longtime girlfriend, during a show at the Masonic Temple in Detroit, which I'm not sure of. Uh, How do we feel about this? Like a joyous thing. Congratulations to the happy couple. Um, He did the whole Hotel Yorba thing here I'm seeing where he, he got her on stage to join him for a cover of the White Stripe song Hotel Yorba, which is incredible. After singing the lyric, Let's Get Married, he then proposed with a ring. And then at the start of the encore... Um, Ben Swank, Turdman co-founder, walked on stage to officiate the thing. I've seen the video footage and she is doing her whole like, you know, she seems very surprised by it, like head and hands in a joyous way. It doesn't seem like it was a set up thing. So she was like, yeah, do the proposal and then we'll get married. And they've planned it out. So Uh, how do we feel about this? I I don't know. I was just, I was initially like great for a happy couple. Then I was like, well, that's kind of putting her on the spot. And you're just going to immediately then get married Really? I mean,
1: I don't know. I mean, like, I, I, my, my thoughts on this run from don't care to congratulations, I suppose, to, hey, they're kind of taking the power back. Well, he is, in terms of, like, usually it's, you know, fans proposing on stage at an Ed Sheeran gig. Um, so it's oh, nice so you think to this see. is a fuck
2: you to the fans? I do, yeah, yeah. I, do. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love that read, yeah. And I don't know, I mean, like... <sighs> you would just Would you not feel terribly under pressure if you were her, like...
1: But I have to imagine that you're under pressure in any kind of public proposal scenario, like in a I restaurant. Know, but if, even or a if gig, you say
2: if you say yes, you can kind of go, "We'll talk about this later." And she then rather it goes ruins quiet the gig and, if she says no, doesn't she? I mean, she does. does he, that's what I'm saying. What and she's a performer then? herself. You
1: know, she's a consummate pro. Um, oh, yeah, I mean, we'll talk about this later. <laughs> there will be no encore. Yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly. Congrats. Congrats to all involved, congrats. including me yeah, there. I'm sure they're very a, happy. For making a hilarious, things hilarious jape. Um, well, you can overthink anything, Craig, uh, including your musical career. And I wonder if this next man has, in fact, done that. At one point, Father John Misty was... Uh, I wouldn't call him the patron saint of no encore by any stretch, but we were certainly very much on board, particularly during the pure comedy era. I think maybe we lost a little bit of love for him on God's Favourite Customer. We can talk about it. He's back, though. He's got a brand new album. It's called Chloe and the Next 20th Century. This track is called Q4. We're going to listen to it, and then we're going to review the record. Father John Misty there, apparently there with his musical bid to get onto the soundtrack of the next Wes Anderson film. He's back. He's cut all his hair off. Is it a Samson effect? Do we care anymore? Who is he, Craig? And what, at this stage of his career, is he asking of us, the listener?
2: Well, Dave, nationwide attempts at racial justice reckonings, riots at the Capitol, an ever-lengthening pandemic. So much has changed in the world since we got uh, an album from the as-yet-uncancelled agitator Father John Misty. When he's not clowning around, Father John Misty can be an insightful, poignant songwriter capable of unravelling delicate vulnerabilities and lancing the overstuffed commodification of the modern era, himself included. Um, That's not my words. The words of Alison Hussey with Pitchfork at the start of this year, where it did seem like when they were rolling out their like albums to look forward to, um, little blurbs, they were having a bit of a pop at like... It's it set the stage for, okay, it's time to fully bring this man down. <laughs> um, there's been tidings that he seems like a man out of time. Um, and it's obviously, you know, tongue in cheek, I guess. The other reading is that they would love to find a reason to kind of skewer him. And yeah, I think... Maybe the world has just turned slightly away from the kind of stuff he is doing. So what has he been doing? So Josh Tillman is the musician from Maryland, I believe, Washington's neck of the woods. He was brought up in an evangelical Christian household and then he turned into a kind of, you know, freewheeling, acid dropping, um, cynical, ironic West Coast hippie, I guess. A very modern West Coast hippie. Um, he's been releasing solo stuff since 2004. Um under his own name, under Jay Tillman, they were quite kind of po-faced and worthy albums. He also has been a member of a whole bunch of different bands. Um, I guess most notably, Flea Foxes, where he's the drummer, which seems crazy kind of now. Um, but yeah, he had a bit of an epiphany um, to tie in with our theme for the top five when he was around about twenty nine. He was doing these kind of solo shows as Jay Tillman, um, and he he says he'd play his kind of sad wizard Dungeons and Dragons music and watch people's eyes glaze over. And then in between songs, he'd kind of start being himself and shooting the shit and telling jokes. And all of a sudden, people were like wrapped with attention. Um, So the revelation was, hey, I'm a funny guy. I can write in my own voice, can invest my songs with my personality. And yeah, I guess, uh, ironically, a character kind of lets you do that. You know, the Telonius Monk thing of the genius is the one who is most like himself. And Josh Tillman used Father John Misty to do that. So we got Fear Fun, the first album, when he was about 31, 32. And I thought there was a lot of genius in that. I, it's a tremendous record, still holds up. I was listening to it this week. I Love You Honey Bear was the one that really made his name, or Father John Misty's name, which was confessional, but upbeat, very vulnerable kind of outpouring of love for his wife. And then his concerns, I guess, became global on the aforementioned pure comedy um, about five years ago now at this point, um, where it was a heavyweight kind of release in every sense that word was. not it's just a really long track listing, lyrics that were quite kind of didactic and looking at the state of everything um, and just very one paced and brilliant, but a lot of it. And yeah. A year later, we got God's Favourite Customer. It was more inwards. There seemed to be like he was some marital kind of disharmony. There was stuff going on. Some marvellous kind of songs, I thought. But there was it didn't kind of stack up to the pure comedy standards, really. And yeah, since then, it's been like, where does he kind of go with the character, with himself? Um, he's long since kind of taken himself off social media. There's been no... There was no press run for the last record, I don't think. Very, very limited quotage and kind of chat around uh, Chloe in the next 20th century. Um, So... Yeah, he he hasn't gone the route of being like I'm um, center stage on Twitter still, giving his commentary on like, you know, what does he have to say about the Oscars, which I think is wise. Like, I think he gets the pitchfork thing. And I think he's already addressed that. Like, on, even on Pure Comedy, he was doing those lyrics about like, oh, great, that's what we all need, you know, under a white guy in 2017, taking himself too goddamn seriously. So he's probably been overthinking and thinking what his move should be. He's gone about his work quietly And his work this time is, it's quite a switch up. He's kind of fallen into like the velvety arms of old Hollywood. And he's like steering clear um, in a deliberate, obvious way from social issues and the conversation. And he's tapping into character studies. Um, He's no longer the kind of center of attention. Um, we're getting like jumbled vignettes um, and there's this kind of like dreamlike narrative really centered around this Chloe character who seems kind of unknowable as well. Um, it's interesting. It's it's very well produced, um, but it is Trobaki. It is very, very I can imagine it being very marmite for people. It does feel like he's retreating into something to try and get himself out of a corner I think it's an intriguing retreat. Did you find it to be a treat for the senses, save? How, how did your week go? I, it never really clicked
1: for me. Okay. Um, which I found annoying because I wanted it to. Uh, even like Q4, the one you heard there, I think it's just, it was just, no, I heard it all before kind of levels of arch perhaps, but too often it's, it's I think you're at a remove. Um, I think he's doing the wounded crooner, the lamplight, perhaps from a different era, perhaps from like 20s America or something. And I just, the concept was kind of lost on me, I think. The narrative was lost on me. They're perfectly fine songs. I didn't have a bad time or anything close to it, but it wasn't one that I wanted to go back to too often. Passed the five listen test pretty quickly, but I didn't really, I couldn't quite make sense of it. I mean, like, and I had a similar problem with God's Favourite Customer. Um, Pure Comedy was a record that I completely latched onto and it was my kind of, it was the first time he'd released an album when, by the time I kind of caught up with him. The first two had been out when I kind of started hearing stuff here and there. And I reviewed that album for Drowning Sound and I really kind of, you know, I wrote like a fucking, a proper essay on it. And I wanted to meet the album in its intentions. And I wanted to kind of buy into the pretentiousness of it and the bloat of it and the expansiveness and the, all of the things that could either, you know, just as easily turn somebody off. But I was all in. I think by the time a uh, similar thing with 1975. I mean, it was like, and their, their record, um, a brief inquiry into arm line relationships. By the time the next thing came along, I like I'd kind of maybe I overcommitted or something. I just didn't quite have the same level of interest. I think and intrigue. The glamour had worn off for me, um, and with this one, I wasn't terribly excited about the run up to it, and I wasn't really listening to the singles. I remember you mentioned in passing that you were a little bit concerned, I think, by the first couple of singles that you heard. Tell me why that was, and if that feeling kind of, you know, continued over the course of a full record, because this is clearly, like, as you say, lavishly put together, and, you know, I think the commitment is here from him, but is he just kind of preaching to his own, is he preaching to a fucking mirror at this stage, you know?
2: Yeah, I was slightly concerned or you know I just thought it's yeah this this will probably just wash over me we got the trio of kind of singles or lead tracks and what I always loved about Father John Misty was like when he combines the you know whip smart like above it all lyricism and that perspective with like something a bit more carnal and like that kind of bite um particularly on Fear Fun um Hollywood Forever Cemetery Sings I think that still might be his high watermark I kind of want him to be the guy that's like rotting on top of those tombstones whilst also like talking about his like Adderall-induced panic attack instead of like here where I was worried he was going to be writing songs for like the decaying celebrities in the plots (laughs) do you know what I mean like this very kind of almost 1940s kind of music it sounded to me like the arrangements were fussy slightly anemic and quite similar um and just uh, at an arm's length is spot on uh, like uh, just listening to them i was like this could be playing in a different room or something there was just a disconnect there um which wasn't helped by the fact that um one of the tracks i think good, good uh, by mr blue is uh, essentially everybody's talking it's just like it's got to be an official interpolation because it's just him doing a nilsen thing with the exact same melody and he does so much that obviously that's a nod like i'm sure that that's all cleared and stuff like that but i'm just like Is he just reusing melodies from that time because he's kind of out of ideas? Those were my concerns. And then I put on the album and it opens with... He's. I think he prods you with the first song because it opens with like this rye-sounding like flugelhorn. <laughs> if, if a flugelhorn can be rye, it's really like, we might as well have just heard like the roar from the MGM Lion. Do you know what I mean? We're just right into one of those films. You know, Marilyn Monroe could be singing over the top of this music and like some like it hot. And and yet, over-repeated listens and it was fine to kind of get through the five and then it started kind of actually working for me. I mean, even on that opening track, he's dropping Benzedrine references and there's other stuff going on. And yeah, you know, Goodbye Mr. Blue is kind of an ode to, it's very Nilsenated, it's an ode to that kind of stuff. But also it's about like, you know, this dying pet kind of bringing a couple back together and there's weird layers going on. And then other songs like just kind of psychedelic waltz, um, everything but her love, which is a bit slight. And I was like, yeah, okay. But actually, digging into the lyrics, and I did spend like, concentrated time with them. They're actually quite kind of modern tales. They're willfully inscrutable, I think. And I agree with you. I, I, like half the time, I couldn't quite figure out because they're all different characters. They, they None of them seem to be him until we get to the end and he's talking directly to his kind of state of mind and the listeners and I guess what we've just been through in this kind of lighter entertainment show has going on but I felt like he was doing a thing where the logic is kind of slippery it's quite dreamlike it almost dare I say it felt a bit lynching to me where and I, I think what actually brought it all together for me was like when we do finally get to that closing track it really started getting its hooks into me and it's um like the near title track, um, The Next 20th Century. I think that's like instantly into like the pantheon. I think that's like he always knows how to close an album. Like he it nails those. It's a very,
1: very, very strong closer. It's
2: great. And I was just like, is this an initial listen? I was like, this is the outlier. Because musically, it's slightly different and it's very direct. And my first thoughts were like, this is what he should be doing. And actually now I think it's like the culmination. I think it's the punchline and the rest of the album is the setup of I'm giving you all this kind of throwbacky, nostalgic (coughs) feel-good stuff. And That's asking a lot though, you know. It's asking a lot. I think even from his ardent fans. Yeah, I agree. And uh, uh, that alone wouldn't be enough. But I do think what it has going for it is the songs are quite strong the more I listen to them. And there is layers going on there. And I think he's injecting kind of social commentary throughout and there's kind of... He's, he's coming at it from a clever angle. I think he's doing quite a kind of delicate dance here. And it's, it's helped by the fact that I think he's working with Jonathan Wilson. and I forget the, I forget the other guy's name, but like people that have arranged his stuff previously. Uh, like I think 11 Strong Orchestra as well as on this a string quartet. And what they don't do is over-egg it too much for for my ears anyway. It didn't feel pastiche by the time I got to like five listens. The playing is kind of quite tasteful. The songs started revealing themselves and I was like, okay, yeah, he's actually, he's kind of doing something potentially special here. I just find it, the the last track is still the only one that has had that gut punch, direct emotional moment for me where I'm like, yeah, that's instantly one of his classics. It's the kind of song that if those you know words were coming from a Nick Cave or Leonard Cohen you'd be like that's in you know their top tier like I really do think it's tremendous but the other songs there's a puzzle there that I'm really intrigued by I'm kind of fascinated by I keep kind of playing it even if it's not having that huge emotional impact that some of this previous stuff has done so it's not I don't know it's it's almost like I'm I'm experiencing it as a kind of film I'm trying to dig into or something a bit more literary. It's not the kind of immediate resonance of most of the music I love, but I've come to kind of respect respect it. I'm going to kind of stick with it and prefacing, or you're not prefacing, but kind of concluding all that with, to your point of like it asking a lot of people, I'm, you know obviously a bit of a music nerd who's like, oh yeah, this reminds me of that Nilsson thing. And I see what he's doing here. And like the track that's bossa nova. Well, he's like, you know, speaking Spanish, even though it should be Portuguese, because actually it's songs about this kind of urbane, supposedly urbane guy that actually is messing it up. And it's all full of this kind of in-jokey meta stuff that I think he pulls off really well, but has a very limited audience ramble on a bit more. No, no, no. That's that's where I'm at. I
1: I think that was quite succinct and spot on. So earlier you said, uh, you know, is he out of ideas? Uh, You're asking that question. I think we're both probably of the mind that he isn't out of ideas. I do wonder if he's out of great ideas, though. Mm -hmm. Closing track aside, wasn't a lot here that grabbed me. I don't know how often I'll go back to it. I guess we'll see as the year opens up, but it didn't didn't hook me in too much. So it's a 6 out of 10 for me, and I would like to see him kind of you know
2: wow me again but I don't know if it's going to happen what about you I think the important thing is something we've both landed on despite having like different experiences of the record it's just like I think there is a bit of relief in going okay actually he's going to be in it for the long haul I think there's enough there particularly the closer and you know Q4 works really well for me Buddy's Rendezvous I think is a great song as well but I think I think he's kind of he's got himself out of the cul-de-sac he might have been heading down slightly it does seem like there's kind of other avenues there and there was the relief there of just being like, yeah, I can, I can now foresee the next few albums being completely different again, but he's still very much in the game. It's, it's probably a strong seven for me. I can imagine it getting to an eight. I can't give it a full eight because just, again, how many of the people listening to this will truly be into it. But if this kind of stuff is like up your alley, if you're intrigued by the man, I think they this is potentially very re- rewarding. So I'd say a strong seven.
1: Okay. Um, and hey, it would be fitting for our top five if he takes another couple of albums to really get good again, but we'll see. We hope for the best. And yeah, it hasn't been cancelled yet. Maybe getting on social media was the move. Who knows? Um, right. Top five late bloomers. This is our top five. Inspired by Father John Misty. Why, Craig?
2: Yeah, I guess because Father John Misty's first album came out when he was like 31, but he had this whole... Not really a wilderness patch, but I guess the solo material was going nowhere. As I said previously, he just hadn't found his voice. He was a background man in other people's bands, and then just this kind of eureka moment as he moved past the twenties, which is, I guess, seen as just the moment people. There's probably that still that ingrained thing of like if you haven't made it by thirty. I mean, and it's it's probably due to a lot of factors. You could go back to you know when pop. Meets rock and roll, and suddenly it's a teenage thing, and it's all about like the younger you are, the better. Because actually, I think when pop music first kind of came around, it was more for like the middle aged, and like the stars would have been older and more, you know, considered artists and stuff, but it became a kind of young man and young woman's game. Also, I think the fact that just music itself is so kind of precarious, if you haven't kind of made it, but being at it for a decade, people will just go, Well, maybe I should get a job that actually gives me money, and that like I have to start thinking about my future. So it's not something you can kind of hit your stride in in your 40s or 50s or unless you're going to like sacrifice quite a lot. So it did. I'm intrigued to see hear your your choices, but also hear how you got on with the process. Because I think we had a quick turnaround on this one. I suggested it, but also we're kind of thinking, okay, is this going to take a lot of research? Because these people are kind of outliers. Um, but maybe it's a thing of like, we know a lot of these people because they are such, people do kind of cling to them a bit. There is that thing of just like, oh, well, such and such made it at 45, so anyone can do it, like that optimistic thing. How did you get on?
1: I said to Greg at the weekend that this was a really good idea of his uh for a top <laughs> five, and I was like, yeah, is it going to be too research heavy, and we've one less day to play with, and, you know, I mean, you know, like... I, I hate people who complain about hosting podcasts, and I know I do all the time, so I, I do apologize. But it's one of those things where you're like, you know, you got to box off time to get these things right. And like, we love the top five. Like, like I love doing the top five, and I love it when it you know, has interesting factoids and information and kind of audio clips as we had last week with the 1999 MTV Awards and such. Uh, so you want to kind of find the little, you, 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 you want to turn over the, the rocks, Craig, and really kind of give the listener some added value to their show. That's the that's the point. And sometimes you're like, fuck, I have no time. You're like, I'm just, yeah. Jesus. But with this one, actually, thankfully, I, I'm happy with the five I have. And like, I did actually, and I avoided, there's some very obvious ones and I kind of avoided yeah. them because I just thought, well, you know, but then you get into the weeds about like, well, what. What defines a late blamer because for example I mean like I think we're looking at this from the point of view of like how the industry would perceive somebody uh, in some respects because what does it mean and why is it a thing and also who cares and ageism does that come into play and it probably does as a matter of fact I'll get us going with with one that kind of touches on something Craig said Craig said young men and young women I, I mentioned ageism there Uh, my number five is a woman who when she first emerged into the pop culture world she was young and i think when she kind of crystallized so to speak she was still very fucking young despite what people would say about her so for me uh i'll explain my my choice in a a moment but i think that this applies i think she's great it just took us a while to kind of really accept how good she is Yes, it's Kylie Minogue. Kylie, one of the few artists in the world whose name as a singular, just works. She's genuinely iconic. And she was a household name in like fucking 1987 when she was coming off Neighbours and she released Locomotion and I Should Be So Lucky. as her first two singles. So yeah, you'd be like, well, come on, Dave, how's that a late bloomer? But for me, Clive, uh, she only became quote unquote credible around 2000 following the release of Spinning Around, this song on a night like this, and the subsequent album Light Years, which was her seventh album. It wasn't for me anyway, as a teenager, um, you know, reading music magazines and such, it, she, it didn't feel like she was taken seriously now granted you could still say that maybe she wasn't at the time because of course there was the infamous video spinning around the hot pants that cost fucking 50 pence or whatever and the whole weird thing where it was like can you believe this old hag is still somehow attractive at the age of checks notes 31 you 31 yeah unbelievable like the the tabloid media had a field day with like oh we don't feel good about finding her sexually actually attractive but it was like okay what like what like 2000 guys a whole different time you think it's bad now (laughs) um Yeah, so I do think that this was the moment that people started to take her seriously in terms of realising, wait a minute, she's really fucking good. Um, She's really good at pop music. She's well able to command a stage. She has a personality. You can put her in a fucking movie. She's a star, you know, and the tunes were starting to come. I think, you know, her run from here onwards as well, you know, you get into tracks like Slow that would follow kind of down the line and various others. Like, obviously Can't Get You Out of My Head comes around in 2001, I think. All timers. And yeah, it was like she was like a sleeping giant or something, you know, I mean, like who gets good, quote unquote, gets good seven albums in or who at least gets themselves on the map that way. So, yeah, I think that she qualifies for this, despite the fact that she was just north of 30 when it kind of started to really kind of,
2: um, you know, avalanche for her. Yeah. And I think it was as much about her as like the audience realizing what her kind of strengths were. Because there was that period in the 90s where she was clearly trying to find her own like artistic voice. And she, you know, she went like indie, quote unquote indie. And there was the Nick Cave collab, which is brilliant. But also there was kind of some Britpop trend chasing. And then, yeah, turn of the century, she clearly just realized pop music is credible. She caught that wave ahead of time and really paid off. Yeah, that's fair. 31 works for me, Dave. Yeah. (laughs) Good first choice. Uh, Let's go for something entirely different. This is a dude that was on the verge of 40 when his debut came out. And what I think I love about this guy is that we can often associate like older artists that like, you know, break through with maybe more contemplative work and, you know, mature, sophisticated sound and he was pioneering raising hell making songs that sound like they came directly from hell this one is utterly heavenly um let's have a listen driven,
0: driven.
2: Yeah, that's Suicide, Dream Baby Dream, Uh, Alan Vega, he was also, um, he was joined uh, in the group by Martin Rev, I believe Yeah, Martin Rev, who was also well into his 30s. So Alan Vega was born Alan Bermowitz in Brooklyn in June 1938, remarkably pre-Second World War and became a major punk figure I guess in the late 70s um, he was older than most of like the 60s icons and somehow kind of caught this wave and he just did work that was so forward-thinking Um, invented electropunk actually pioneered that term as well I think he took it from like Lester Bangs and started suicide got together in the early 70s sounded quite different but he was kind of you know, advertising them as punk shows and he had a whole different life prior to being a musician. He was, he studied kind of like fine art, he was a sculptor, he was knocking around the kind of art scene in New York and when he was 31, I think he went to like a Stooges show, like a really early Stooges show, late 60s and had like, he had an epiphany and was like, I'm going to do music now and it took a further like seven or eight years for Suicide to release an album and yeah just a totally different sound they stripped everything away they got rid of the guitar um they ended up with just these primitive synths that sounded like it's kind of like craft work if you take away the kind of optimistic futurism of that and it just sounds like kind of post-nuclear um holocaust america that was the sound of suicide and yet brilliant and he totally kind of owned it i guess um interestingly enough no one knew what his age was they thought he was like at least 10 years younger until 2008 yeah 2008 so his his actual age came out in 2008 because um, an Alan Vega box set was released to celebrate his 70th birthday and all the journals were like what? he's 70? <laughs> <laughs> So he'd been going by like a a decade younger or something for, I guess it was, you know, the 70s buckaroo. He felt like he had to. It would have been cool if he had been able to own the kind of older thing, but he had a lot on his plate. Like he he talks about like those gigs in like New York at the punk scene at the time. And just some of the interviews he did where like one of the questions was, did you ever fear for your life when you were on stage? And he said, every show I ever did for a good 15 years, I thought I was going to die every night. Fuck. He talks about like going to the UK and they did a show in Edinburgh and he was like, you turned to your man Martin Rev like, okay, things are going to kick off. This looks bad. People started dancing and he was like, my career's over. Um, <laughs> then he went to Glasgow and someone threw an axe at him and was like, we're, we're back we're on back, track. <laughs> <laughs> we're fucking back on track. But he'd come out like with a motorcycle chain that was like eight feet long and start whipping it around. He so, did the whole kind of rockabilly guy from hell thing. I do have yeah. to
1: step in here. The listener is probably wondering. Hang on, what? Like, I mean, the chain thing makes sense in terms of antagonizing audience, but who has an axe lying around at a gig? um Glaswegians apparently an axe. <laughs> I don't know. I've never been to Scotland. I've I heard tales. I appreciate that security screenings uh, have changed over the years for lax back in the like but uh, also like. Uh, see you later, love. Go on the gig. Yeah, I've got my smokes. Uh, I've got, got my keys, <laughs> you've, and I've got my. Your
2: axe.
1: <laughs> I've got my trusty war axe with me,
2: just in case. But it just seems like uh, you know you're in your you're in your forties. You're in this kind of pioneering punk band. You just think at that kind of time of life, you'd be like, I just want to kind of chill out. Do I want to like, get in fights at every gig with these insane teenagers? Yes, Greg. Yes, I do. It's called punk. Look it up. Uh, I guess I'm just not punk enough. And then the 80s, he had like this other kind of s- solo career where he became like a, a genuine star in Europe, just doing kind of like Billy Idol style songs and just had a whole separate thing going on. Um, He's since passed, but just a total character. And his approach was just like, I don't care. I'm confrontational. This is what I want to do. And yeah, fair play to him.
1: So, I always enjoy trying to show off my musical diversity in these top fives. You get pop music, and then you get stuff like this at my number four. bit of a giveaway there that was ramstein i always said ramstein but i guess it is ramstein and the song ramstein uh helpful enough and that is from i think the mid-90s because it appeared in lost highway david lynch's lost highway uh we're specifically singling out frontman till Lindemann, who uh you know is a, a hell of a figure i mean like this kind of gigantic very imposing german man who lights himself on fire on stage. <laughs> They're a strange band. <laughs> and apparently he was just kind of, you know, going through the motions in different kind of bands. He's playing drums here and there. Uh, according to something I read, which I have to wonder is one of those, is this true? Um, he was a, a successful swimmer and almost got the chance to swim in the 1980 Olympics, apparently. Um wow. But it all kind of started for Rammstein around the mid-90s time. He was 32 years of age when they released their first couple of singles and their first album. Um, They end up in a David Lynch movie, which, you know, isn't quite the mainstream breakthrough success of, say... Chasing Cars by Snow Patrol ending up on a Grey's Anatomy episode but it's pretty cool all the same and that's a hell of a film with a hell of a soundtrack and, and
2: they this, did eventually <laughs> end up uh, soundtracking a Grey's Anatomy episode right? Yeah
1: one of the later seasons where yeah, you okay. know the, like you know it, it wasn't quite as
2: McDreamy as. was yeah
1: <laughs> Yeah, you know. Do you ever watch that show? Oh, no. I've never seen a single episode. No, it went for so long, it didn't it's still it? Still like, going? I think. Oh, is it? I think it oh might God. be. And this isn't me doing a fucking Kardashians. Hey, am I the only one who's never even fucking seen this? Hey. I'm just being like, I just, I've just never passed seen it. me by. Just never seen it. It's and just, I, but I, I'm fascinated
2: with those kind of network shows in the states where it's like, it's like all the procedural stuff where they just go for like thirty years, just do it I
1: bones. Don't know. I'm pretty
2: sure it yeah. went for a crazy amount of time. Um, but that's the
1: story that's probably for another podcast. I'd imagine Ramstein. Um, came on my radar around my full-on Kerrang! era. Because remember Kerrang! TV, when that first launched, they used uh, SANA by Rammstein as their kind of, their sting, you know? It was like the advertised music for the station, or like, you know, the kind of cut-to-break stuff. And so I bought the album that was out at the time, um, which, for shame, I have to look up now. I think it's called Mutter, um And there's was the one with like sauna on it and links, you know, two, three, four. It's a fucking hell. Of, it is motor, yeah, hell of an album. It's so good, even though I'm like, I don't know what these fucking what the, what the lyrics are because I'm ignorant and I only know the English language. um But yeah, they're a very interesting band that I've somehow never seen live, and I wish I had. I still should someday. But there you go. I mean, if one of the weirdest, scary industrial bands that kind of make some beautiful music on occasion. You know, if that doesn't inspire you, Craig, to 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 start a new project in your
2: thirties, I don't know. I don't know what else will. This feels like a very inspirational top five. What you reckon? I hope so. It's, it's, I mean, it's quite a hard. One. Do you ever do? Do you ever do that thing of like sometimes you like you where you use celebrities as markers of like where you're at in your own life? Just um, in just in general terms of being like, oh, I'm now the same age as like I don't know. No, Scarlett Johansson or such and such was, you know, when they got the Batman role or blah, blah, blah. I don't
1: think so. That that stuff tends to kind of freak me out, especially when you're like, this person was, you know, like when you see stuff like, you know, Damien Chazelle made his first film when he was 26. He made Whiplash when he was 26. You're like, for fuck's sake, it shouldn't be allowed. Brady Snellis wrote his first book at 19. You're just like, okay, cool. You know, I guess I'll be over here then just grinding content for the rest of my
2: life. You could be the next Morgan Freeman, you know, later start. Really? Did he really start? Yeah, I think Driving Miss Daisy was like his breakthrough when he was in his late 50s, right? He's got a much better voice than I do, though. This is the problem. Uh, Don't let that hold you back, man. Let's go on with my number four and try and get you more inspired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. So this is actually a man that also produced Alan Vega in the 80s. And at the time, he was one of the, the biggest stars of like the nascent MTV era his band kind of led a very like youth orientated um, new wave sound. New wave sound. Katie Kasem. <laughs> Why said that? But he was a grown man, Dave. Strange man. Brilliant man. Here's uh, his brilliant Who's gonna
0: band. Tell you th- Wrong you gonna drive
2: you home tonight? It's the Cars, it's Drive. Rick Kasich, um being, I think, 36 when they um, kind of struck gold initially. And yeah, that clip... Throwing a bone, I think, to the No Encore Hardcore, who who came at us, really, Dave, um, a good few top fives ago when we did songs about driving and failed to include, spoiler alert, failed to include drive by the cars. I, Very I th- good reason. I think we
1: psyched ourselves out on that one, didn't we? That was the classic Craig will pick it, Dave will pick it. And also you maintain that it's not about driving.
2: Yeah, it's about the situation that's happening and then the driving home is the consequence of the thing. It's 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 a It was a kind of get-out-of-jail-free thing, I don't, you know what I mean? But um, there was a lot of options here. That was a slightly later song. It was 1984, I believe. Um, but the debut Cars record was late 70s. I think it's nine tracks. Um, all of them feel like kind of hits. They were fully formed. They kind of sounded immaculate straight away. Um, like I was listening to Just What I Needed There. Um yesterday and it's just it's so good and it invents like 10,000 bands inside like 30 seconds like this is a whole genre immediately so taut, just great and yeah they didn't really have time to waste um, they'd been through like Rick Kasich was from Ohio he met Benjamin Orr who was the bassist and they kind of did dual vocals and they, uh, they kind of had the same amount of hits where they like fronted uh, did did kind of lead vocals which was cool but they met at like a kind of variety show in the 1960s, like a local kind of musical variety thing. They reconnected at college in like 1968 and they formed a band called I.D. Nirvana. Um, and they kind of perform around. And then they went through like, it's almost like a Spinal Tap thing where you just have like, they were literally a folk group at one point. Like their first album was, they were, um, they were called Milkwood. And the album's called How's the Weather. And you see the cover art and you're like, oh my God, they're really <laughs> doing this music. Um, they had various other iterations um, as the kind of 70s wore on. So there's a harder rock band called Richard and the Rabbits. Um, there was the folk duo, yeah. And finally, and Swing, which was an attempt at Steely Dan style pop um, featuring new guitarist Elliot Easton, um, who stuck with them for the Cars which was a totally different thing and Elliot Easton said like the first Cars record should have been called the Cars greatest hits because it was just so kind of fully formed um they went on to have loads of other hits of course or one of the bigger US bands going into the 80s and yeah that kind of you know bringing in synths very simple um direct hooky guitars um very kind of modern sound and like he was a forward-thinking dude um Anytime you read anything about Rick Kasich, everyone's just like, yeah, and such a weird looking guy. Like, he didn't seem like he should have been a pop star. It's just like, okay, kind of enough of that. Like, he he wasn't like Brad Pitt, but, you know, he was just, he was just a kind of, he was still a rock star. Um, But an interesting guy in terms of post um, cars he produced for a lot of people, probably most famously, Weezer. He did a lot of work with them, but he was kind of, he was into like championing, more underground acts as well so like he did a lot of work with bad brains um bad religion guided by voices seemed very generous with his time to other musicians and um you know as much as he was clearly seeking pop stardom or at least stardom for his group and chart success um he kind of seemed like he would have been happier being the you know in the cult act uh, as it happened um but yeah, he had he, he had the full kind of rock star treatment and like even it, the video to drive um, stars Polina uh, uh, Poroskova, the model in it, and he like ended up marrying her, which is like the full kind of rock star dream. I think he was like in his <laughs> 40s by the time this came out and he's just like, the supermodel in that video is going to be my wife. And they had like two kids and um, he passed away a few, few years ago and I think she was the person that found him. Um, so they kind of stuck it out for a long time. But yeah, lived the dream, Dave, but it happened late. How do you feel now?
1: Um, I'm getting there, I suppose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it did end with you talking about
2: how he's dead now. So, yeah, I mean, his lifeless, yeah, lifeless yeah. corpse. At first, At I was like, oh, he yeah.
1: end up with his wife. That's really know. And then it's like, oh, his wife found him. I'm like, okay. Um, but you know, it's a, it's all a cycle, everybody. You know. Uh, number three for me <laughs> <laughs> is a banger, thankfully, which will hopefully get us back on track.
2: Do
0: it. <laughs>
1: Queen of American Heartland Rock, it's Cheryl Crow. Uh, I picked a track there off her second album, uh, her self-titled album. That's "If It Makes You yeah. Happy," but she did have a hit before this. She had a hit with "All I Want to Do" on her first record, Tuesday Night Music Club, which came out in nineteen ninety-three. Um, but I think, like you know, "If It Makes You Happy" was kind of the cementing of this, and it was like you know, Grammy Award-winning. It was a huge hit in the UK. Q Magazine, uh, I believe, Craig Q Magazine, put it at number six hundred and sixty-three. On their 1,001 Best Songs Ever list. There I think you it was
2: actually 62, I remember that issue. <laughs>
1: and, <laughs> uh, the second album was also played regularly in my house when I was a teenager. My brother was a big Sheryl Crow fan, so I kind of got into her off the back of that. I think she's very good. Um, apparently she worked as a music teacher at a Missouri elementary school when she was younger. Uh, created commercial jingles for McDonald's and Toyota, and served as a backing vocalist for Michael Jackson in the eighties. I hope any. Oh, of, wow. like, I don't know if any of this is true. um I didn't have time this week to fact check it.
2: <laughs> so, I like I when I was it. doing doing me googles, uh, I saw her name, and I was surprised. I was like, I bet you there's a really interesting story behind that, but I don't have the time to because I don't know that much Cheryl Carl. So yeah, listen. I yeah. mean, I'm,
1: I'm just kind of going my gut here. Sorry, guys. If it's a bad podcast, I do apologize, but there's not nice so many hours in the day, um, and there were lots of hours in the day for her as well. Uh, by the time that she was
2: thirty-one. She, she was ancient. Yeah, <laughs> so many years.
1: She was thirty-one when she, uh, I think, finally kind of released an album, which was *Choosing Love*. It was ninety-three. Uh, she'd previously recorded an album, and it was rejected by a label. So yeah, it, it took you know it took some time. But I think once she was established, that was it. She was on the road to success. The nineties were a big time for her. She, of course, uh, did a Bond song. Craig, what Bond song was it?
2: Oh my God! One of the good um, ones. Yeah, it was. It was in your top five, was it? Was sure it in your was. top five? That's right, it was, yeah. yeah. Give me the name of it. Tomorrow Never Dies. Oh, of course. And there's, I don't know how true, the, there's a rumour so that... So good, that is such a good song. It's yeah. a great song. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. there's
1: a rumour that, like, the film was originally supposed to be called Tomorrow Never Lies, and someone somewhere, was, like, yeah. someone somewhere, like, messed it up, possibly even Cheryl Crow, and then the rest is history, but I'm sure that's not quite true. Um, it was such a good song, it bumped, I think, Katie Lang did a song that got bumped to the yeah. end credits type situation, but... Sheryl Crow has been an ongoing fixture. I mean, you could make the argument that it's a bit American radio. It's a bit kind of like, you know, you know, all you can picture is these kind of endless highways, et cetera. But I think she's a, or, you know, it's a bit coffee shoppy at times as well. Very of its time, very 90s American stuff. But I think there's a place in the world for 90s American stuff. And I think she's kind of... You know, I I think she's a good, enduring figure. She, like, some of those singles, like My Favourite Mistake, you know, there's some very, very good stuff there. And maybe it took a little bit of life under the collar to be that deft a songwriter at
2: the time. Very good. Up. Okay, my number three. Um, yeah, I think also 31, um, when she released her debut album. And... This is, you know, slightly younger than Rick Ocasek, but also managed to be a sax symbol as well. Shock, horror, at such an old age. Uh, The main thing is the music's amazing too. Like this. Yeah, I think it's probably one of the obvious ones, Debbie Harry, um, of Blondie, that's Union City Blue, um, she wrote along with, I think, bassist Nigel Harrison, um, that was from Eat to the Beat, 1979, a few years into Blondie's career, and yeah, she had a lot of experience under her belt um, by the time Blondie became a thing, so of course, co-founder of the group with Chris Stein, um, she met back in 73. And she'd kind of lived a lot of life. Um, so she'd kind of, you know, she'd come to New York as a young woman. She'd apparently worked for like the BBC over there. She'd hung out with Andy Warhol and all that kind of stuff. Um, she was a driver for the New York Dolls. She'd kind of started a girl band. Um, and she'd worked as like a playboy bunny at like the the playboy club in New York. And she was in a group called the Stilettos that didn't seem to be going anywhere fast. But yeah, her and Chris Dyne hit it off, gathered some great, you know, players around them. And I think the making of them was Max's Kansas City. And um, they just kind of set up a residency there, Um, worked out the songs and what bloody songs. It was probably Parallel Alliance, the third record, 1978, where they became fully like mainstream. She would have been about 34 at that stage. And Wasn't around at the time, but seemed to be an absolutely huge kind of sex symbol, Um, you know, posters on kind of, you know, teenage bedroom walls across the land and um, a terrific songwriter, uh, really charismatic presence. They released a lot of kind of albums in quick succession and she got a lot of kind of absolute classics under her belt. And then there was, you know... That period in the 80s where she kind of struck out, I I think she tried to like launch a a film career. Actually, I think that song, Union City Blue, was taken from a film she started in, which didn't really go anywhere. And she kind of launched a solo career, which didn't really go anywhere. And I think Chris Stein like fell very ill at the 80s. So they took a hiatus where she basically nursed them back to health. And then they didn't really have a proper comeback until the 90s, which of course, Dave, resulted in what song? Maria,
1: yeah, oh, incredible song, there. wonderful song, A fucking
2: incredible. Oh, if
1: if not for patience, by take that, it would be the greatest comeback song of all time.
2: Yeah, and I think it also made her. The oldest woman to have a UK number one at the time that sounds when that right. hit, the, yeah, sounds right. Yeah, and then sure,
1: so, possibly, or well, that was she was the year before, we believe, right? Am I right in saying that?
2: Yeah, that's probably. Yeah, I think there was a couple in quick succession, so real tra- trailblazers in that regard. Um, but yeah, I was reading some interviews with um, Debbie Harry and Chris Stein as well, because he's he's always knocking around there as well. But yeah, she's just kind of talking about those initial experiences and just you know becoming a star. Um, how she felt kind of dismissed. And she says, Yeah, like I felt like I was, a, you know, a bit of fluff, essentially. Um, but she's quite guarded. She kind of says, like, you know, and pragmatic. She's like, This is kind of the way things were. And I just had to kind of keep my head dow- down. <laughs> why, why am I? <laughs> I'm paraphrasing Debbie Harry as if she's Sam Allardyce. I was about to say, yeah. Uh, <laughs> pragmatic get tactics, get the head down, just uh, enjoying <laughs> not, me football. Nothing flash, just get it done. <laughs> And she, you know, she was saying she was um, selling like an illusion of herself, essentially. And and she kind of says she figured that out because she had a couple of different starts in music. The first one, she says, was in the 60s. It was another folk group. She was in a folk group called Wind in the Willow. Jesus Christ. And she tried again in the 70s. And she says, I was a little bit older than most people. That may have given me more perspective. I knew I was deluded and didn't care. Yes, more delusion. And the delusion paid off, which is great. I love Blondie. I think they're incredible. Yeah. I think she's
1: incredible. I saw Blondie live in I want to say 2008 or so and I was wildly hungover so I didn't enjoy it too much but they were great. Um, an incredible force to be reckoned with. Music needs them has always needed them. I put them up there with anybody. I put them up there with the Pixies. I put them up there with any band, you know. They're just they're very important, I think. And I think Yeah, very much so. Would the band work without Debbie Harry? I would argue probably not. I think she's fucking rules. 100% so yeah, perfect choice. I thought you might, so I didn't pick her, but obviously in any other day, of course I would. She rules. As do Blondie. Check them out if you never have for some reason. Number 2 for me. Uh, proof positive that you can still be a hipster dickhead at the age of 35.
0: This is for my house. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yes, it's uh, Craig Fitzpatrick's favourite musician, James Murphy, of LCD Sound System. That Daft Punk is playing at my house, taken from the self-titled debut that arrived in 2005, by which point James Murphy was 35 years young. He, of course, had fucked around in all kinds of bands and DJ fixtures for a while, but this was the big thing, Craig. It kicked it all off, and it was pretty much, pretty much the birth of a new scene, right? Or at least the... You know the kind of harnessing of the New York power at the time. Oh yeah,
2: definitely. He started something, something that sounded a lot like other things. In <laughs> fairness, I actually have a lot of time for um, a lot of his work. I think it was probably just the the previous record where I was like, he's doubling down on sounding like everything. And I I thought you might pick him, and I felt like I do think he's got a great story. Uh, I think he is a bit inspirational in terms of his like dedication and just he kind of does like. He, <laughs> I don't know, if you're kind of a music fan or a bit of a music obsessive, that is kind of the dream, right? Where you just like, you ape your heroes and then suddenly start hanging out with them. And he pulled it off. He did it. Um, He's got a great story. So yeah, he deserves to be in the list. Yeah. And I
1: think we're more on board with the earlier LCD hits than the later ones
2: in terms of quality control. Yeah. I mean, songs like... um, all my friends and someone great are just absolutely tearing achievements. So I'd never take that away from, um,
1: it's worth though, listener, yeah. if you haven't, for some reason, go back to an episode from two years ago, uh, search, <laughs> search in your podcast feed, there no encore top five overrated albums and please enjoy what I still think could be Craig's finest five, six minutes in the show history. Craig's tearing into this is happening by LCD sound system. I often go back to it and I laugh and I laugh, I laugh, I laugh every time. It's very, very funny. Um, I guess he's funny as well, or has it in his locker, because here's an excerpt from a Guardian interview from 2004 that raised my eyebrows, Craig. So okay. um, he describes himself as basically a schlub at one point, right? And they're saying the 34-year-old doesn't exactly radiate confidence. Um, partly, this assessment of himself stems from something that happened when he was 21. A sharp, dry young graduate who majored in English, Murphy was in talks with the producers of It's Gary Shandling's show... They told him they were looking for writers for a new sitcom and sent him some scripts. But intent on pursuing a career in music, he failed to respond. He even ignored their offer to be the first staff writer on the new show. The name of the show? Seinfeld. Yeah. He still has the letter pinned to the wall of his office, a constant reminder of what he refers to as the biggest mistake of my life. He's not proud of it. Failure is not a positive, he says, and I speak as a fucking lifetime failure. This interview was in 2004. LCD Sensism's album would follow in 2005 and I think we can say he's no longer a fucking failure.
2: Yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? It's just one of those It's, it's so strange doors strange. It moments, has to yeah. be true. Yeah. I mean, thank God for his own sake that he actually did, you know, become something because that would have just hung over you. Um, I mean, he'd kind of, like, he'd been around and he was, he, you know, he was a, he was a big kind of figure on the scene prior to LCD sound system kicking off, right? So all the kind of infrastructure was in place and he was a known quantity and, but yeah, it's amazing how far he went. Um, right to Madison Square Garden for a farewell show, that, and then they just never came back. <laughs> <laughs> he was Wait, a man what? Of, he, he, he was a man of his word, Craig, yeah. Of course, of course. Um, all right, let's go on to my runner-up. Uh, this is another obvious one, Dave. Um, so when the chief executive of Columbia Records heard that a and man, John Hammond, wanted to sign this man in 1967, he reportedly said, a 32-year-old poet? Are you crazy? Here's that man.
0: We met when we were all So
2: Had to include him. Um, it's the grocer of despair. The bard of the bedsit. Leonard Cohn. So long, Marianne. It was taken from Songs of Leonard Cohn, which was his debut when he was 33 years young and already an acclaimed poet. Um, very wise man who thought, I need to make some real money. So... I know what I should do. I should get into the music business. It was a different time, a very, very different time. And it panned out for him. um, Yeah, the quote was "An, an economic solution to the problem of making a living and being a writer. So it was kind of a sideways move, I guess. Like if you're a poet, you can kind of switch things up, right? I mean, no, it's actually very, very difficult. I guess the amazing thing about Leonard Cohen to me is that it wasn't a case of him having his moment, like it wasn't like, okay, he's kind of, you know, he's into, into his 30s, he's going to have a couple of years. It's like this, this was very much the start of a long, long career and there's so many different eras of Leonard Cohn, and it feels like he wasn't really even coming into himself until... Maybe late eighties, until that voice properly dropped. Like you hear that and you're just like, he sounds so young at <laughs> 33 there. Like that's Baby Cone with the kind of high nasally voice. <laughs> Baby Cone. But already <laughs> Baby like he's a fucking Cone. footballer signed by West Ham. <laughs> <laughs> but I think he ch- I think his age alone, as aside from his kind of incredible gifts, changed the game a bit. Um because it just brought rock music into a place where it could be compared to, you know, you could have a career in rock music that was akin to a literary career, you, like a novelist, like it held in that esteem where it was something for life and it was um, a vocation and you would disappear for maybe five or six years and live a bit and come back with your latest kind of masterpiece. And it wasn't just kind of the disposable pop for kids that had had maybe previously been. Um And yeah, he just kind of doubled down on the brilliance, really. And he had a few times when he really had to come back, um, like the 80s again. um, Like, I I think various positions, I think, was the early 80s record that had Hallelujah on it um, that just wasn't picked up for ages. And the label didn't want to release it. He seemed kind of washed up at this point. Like, I think the record label quote was something like, we know you're great, Leonard, but we're not quite sure if you're any good. Yeah. and he just kind of got a synthesizer and found a new sound and got darker and just continued on and then the comeback after he lost all his cash to like that horrendous manager of his and he hit the road and released new albums like way into his 70s and what incredible shows he put on and what incredible albums Um, just a mighty mighty man Um, coming from a kind of implausible place Um, there was an interesting letter I stumbled across from the day after or a few days after his yeah it was actually the day after his first kind of show so he'd written the song Suzanne and he knew kind of some people in the industry he gave it to Judy Collins who who kind of sang it and had the first kind of hit with it and she was a big champion of him and she was like okay you're going to actually become a performer yourself you're gonna I've got this huge kind of benefit gig on um, and you're gonna play at it and he wrote a letter to the Marianne from that song who um, was kind of his muse for years but it's kind of a sweet thing it was like it was up for auction at Christie's it went for like 35 grand but it's it's quite a sweet moment of like grown man Leonard Cohn, still kind of baby Cone in his 30s writing to Marianne about like his feelings about suddenly maybe becoming a pop star Um, and says yeah I sang in New York for the first time last night at a huge benefit concert every singer you've ever heard of was there performing Judy Collins introduced me to the audience over 3000 people and they seemed to know who I was mostly because of Suzanne the performance was rocky but the 13 year olds apparently liked it Uh, I stepped up to the mic hit a chord on my guitar found the instrument had gone completely out of tune tried to tune it couldn't decided to try sing anyhow couldn't get more than a croak out of my throat managed four lines of Suzanne my voice was unbelievably flat then I broke off and said simply sorry I just can't make it and walked (laughs) off the stage So, like, Judy Collins kept the kind of show on the road and then, like, managed to get him back out. Um, and he continues in the letter, I managed to squeeze Stranger out of my throat. The people love a failure, and I know why they loved me for those moments and suffered with me. Let me be their bravest selves. Uh, a curious happiness seemed to overtake me. I had failed. I had really failed. There was something so beautiful about total failure. It really made me drunk. And, yeah, he kind of goes on to talk about the loneliness of the hotel and kind of where he's at in life. And he says, I'm a little homesick myself. Uh, I should be there in a month or so and see what I can do with another book. I hope you're feeling good. Little friend of my life. I love it when you're happy. Kind of sweet way to kind of close off that letter and just, yeah, the start of everything for him, but well into his story.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, an unavoidable name, I guess, that uh, yeah. I avoided <laughs> in, my, in my top five. I don't know. Psychic Bond, Greg. I just assume that you would right. honour. Well, not my number one. Now number it was one. Oh, be number well, one, I'd be surprised if we have the same number one, but I guess we'll okay. find out. For the record, I love Aaron Cohen. By the way, obviously incredible, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, number one, though, uh, very different than Cohen, I would think. But maybe he was into them. Who knows? Um, and again, I mean, like, you know, they're kind of stretching the definition here, like. Cause I'm talking about the front man of this band, and you know he was on the cusp of 31 when the debut album comes out. So again, not exactly fucking, you know, old or anything close to it. No, him. young. Yeah, quite young. <laughs> says the 33 year old. So it's like, yeah. I don't know. I mean, look, I'm sorry. C6 Steve didn't make my list. Okay, so this is just how it works. Oh man, but the hoot nanny, the hoot nanny, the hoot nanny. He says number one is a hoot nanny of a much different kind. Get these guys on there. <laughs> Versatile tones of Serge Tankian there, frontman of System of a Down, and that is the opening track to their self-titled record from 1998. The song is called Sweet Pea, and it's amazing. Um, I mean, what can you say about this band? They would obviously hit the mainstream peak a few years later with Toxicity, the second studio album, which is great, absolutely brilliant, and it has some incredible singles, Chop Suey, of course, being the one that kind of really got them on people's radar, But I think I'd pick the first album in terms of their best moment in the sun. That first album is so powerful. I've gone back to it a bunch. And yeah, essentially like Serge Tankian along along with uh, Darren Malachian of the band. They had worked in a previous band back in 92. They formed System in in, in 94. And by the time 98 rolls around, they released this album on American recordings. And I mean, it gets people talking. And it's part of that kind of... They're in that kind of weird... The system have always been in that weird kind of place where they're associated with new metal. I myself have even included Chop Series new metal song when I did the yeah. Today FM thing a while ago. But they're not quite new metal. They're kind of in a league of their own. I do think over the years the quality dipped a little bit. And I think that the magic kind of... He's getting on. <laughs> a real late bloomer. I think the magic kind of ran out a little bit by the time the third album came around. It was a bit throwaway. And then like the fourth one I was kind of off... I probably should revisit them and I guess in recent years they themselves have become quite splintered. Uh, We've talked on this show before about the fact that their drummer John Dalmoyan is a Donald Trump supporter and you know that's a baffling thing in and of itself. It's like really? This band? (laughs) Okay. Bizarre. And they did release a couple of singles for charity purposes recently and they weren't bad and it kind of got people talking and being like oh maybe they're coming back and it seems that there still are inner conflicts within the within the group that can't quite mend over into a, full, a full-blown a full reunion. Um, I think there's such... It's weird. Like, it's kind of, you know, what's that quote? Like, the spark that burns twice as bright burns half as long or something. Um, there's something to system of a down in that they had that run of the late 90s into the early 2000s. And while they were still a force for a while... I think that they kind of had this kind of white-hot epicenter of what they were about, which I guess is the opposite of being a late bloomer. But fuck it, this is my number one. It's an important album, and I think it's very important today. I think it's very well worth going back to. There's so much undercurrent I here. don't know
2: it, actually. I'm going to check it out. It's incredible.
1: I mean, look, Toxicity's great. I think I think Toxicity is an excellent, excellent album, but I think this one has a bit more weight to it. So that's my number one,
2: baby. Very good, you were right to be confident that we wouldn't have the same number one and I'm also, (laughs) I was coming in confident as well Um, so my number one is a man who was a former fourth grade teacher for about 14 years, you could find him avoiding other teachers in a staff room in Dayton, Ohio, still drunk from the night before, where he recorded yet another album and drank yet another crate of beers with his buddies in his garage, and he's still doing it today, except for the teaching bit, here we go opportunity for a bit of guided by voices chat it's robert pollard bobby p that was subspace biographies um that wasn't a guided by voices song um so like there's been a few top fives where i could have put in guided by voices songs and they have been like in my subs and i've cut the clip so i had ready made like gbv classics good to go dave but the thing with Robert Pollard is, he's written a hell of a lot of songs. So there's always a new one kind of on the go. And that one is something on like a, a self-released 1998 album. Because aside from releasing ridiculous amounts of GBV albums, he also solo releases stuff. He's got box sets full of them, um, volumes of kind of releases with other bands. And then GBV is the day job. Basically, he started late, and also is a testament to like the industry that you can put in. Like you can release a lot of stuff, even if you're kind of late starting. Um, so I, I first heard about GBV. I think I was reading like a New York New Yorker article or something like that um, when I was a teenager. But it was when they were first breaking reading up. Reading the New Yorker and- when he's a teenager, guys. <laughs> this is who he is. <laughs> he's cooler than you. Don't talk to me about the New York, by the way. I got a subscription last year, and have I read any of them? No. And is there a huge pile of them in the corner that's taunting me? Yes. It's fucking horrendous. They keep arriving. There's no time to read them. That's what happens when you subscribe
1: to something, Craig. They'll send you things.
2: I know. (laughs) Very, very good. But yeah, they broke up in 2004, and then got back together in 2010, broke up again, and got back together in 2016 but I'm saying all this to illustrate that since 2016 since that reunion they've released 13 albums <laughs> including this year's Crystal Nuns Cathedral um, they're, I think he's just a great example of an artist who isn't really your typical like tortured artist he's not really a shrinking violet like he's the guy from suburban small town usa who apparently could have been like um a professional athlete just a kind of unabashed uncomplicated rock fan that happens to be one of the best melody writers i think of all time he's just tremendously gifted and his backstory is incredible like it feeds into the nostalgic sound they have where it's just like He'd have all these kind of bands on the go as he like worked his day job as uh, a, th- a teacher, which he was only in because he wanted to get the summers off so he could write more music and stuff wasn't really happening. Um, and all through like the kind of 80s, he was recording a huge amount of like stuff on 4Track. Um, by the early 90s, he was like getting, getting loans out with the credit union to like finance the records and then like pressing like maybe 500 copies of each um most of which wouldn't be kind of sold or picked up and then in like 1992 um he put out one more album propeller uh, which he thought was like their best album and broke up the band and was like i'm going to be a teacher full-time because i've done my best work and it's not happening and no one cares then of course a label instantly comes along um scat records i think it was finds them, and it's just like, okay, we're, you know, we think you're um, incredible, and we think you could be a humongous indie band, humongous on that scale, which they kind of then became in the 90s. b came out in 1994, and he is like late 30s at this point, and just keeps writing, and just keeps releasing, and he doesn't ever really have that huge crossover moment, but a huge fan base. Um, I mean, I heard about them. Um and he's they're like an insane kind of cottage industry at this point where I'm thinking like he clearly has he's clearly done the the, like the maths right and there must be a certain like there must be thousands of kind of bands that will buy every release so he will just release like three albums a year and that's gotta like tie him over and it's a kind of it works for him um I can't keep up but fair play um. And yeah, he's just, there's something about him. I think he's ridiculously slept on at this point. And it's very intimidating trying to get into GBV because where do you even begin? I think you begin with those kind of mid-90s albums. Um, But yeah, tremendous dude.
1: I thought you were queuing up The National for your number one. That's what I was expecting.
2: Uh, Yeah, do you know what I thought about it? Not least because like Matt Berninger was, he was an ad man. (laughs) He was in advertising and was just like, isn't that that quote of like, um, I think he was in his early thirties. He was an art director, and he's just like, I had to give the music a go if it just meant I didn't have to sit in one more fucking Mastercard meeting talking <laughs> about like display ads. <laughs> I'm just like, yep, I fucking know the feeling, man. Yeah. Oof.
1: Uh, top five for another time, maybe. Top five uh, existential dread, maybe. I don't know. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, top five Rat Race songs. I don't know. We'll we'll get there. We'll get there. Top five national songs. Did we have to do that. That'll be good. We've never done that, no. Have mm. we entertained us? Don't, we don't really do many pure artists. We did ones. Kanye before. Maybe it's time to start branching out and doing yeah. some speci- some artist centric ones. I
2: think like we did kind like community. existential dread. I we, think we could do s- songs about like work or something. I think we did like, like a, a day national, job. Always,
1: I think we did like a national listening guide years ago or something. But like you know who? Oh, knows?
2: we did. Yeah, yeah. Probably. We'll did. figure it out.
1: Um, <laughs> we'll get there, Craig. It's late.
2: It's getting late. It's late, more rice than one it's,
1: it's late blooming you might say <laughs> but someone who is always in bloom the wonderful beautiful sonic architect Adam timeless you could say and yeah. ahead of himself I think in terms of you know his career path blazing the trail sickeningly young man showing us how it's done forever the, he's shaking his head he's
2: not having it <laughs> but I'm having it now uh, the folly of youth you'll yeah. understand one day Adam <laughs>
1: Yeah, get your beauty sleep, which is what I'm about to do now in a couple of hours because I got an
2: early start in the morning. Yeah, it's
1: fun. Uh, Existential dread, <laughs> top five. <laughs> uh, nothing, nothing better. What will, what will the world have for me at seven a.m. What, what, what will, it, what horrors will have happened overnight? I don't know. Anyway, uh, that's the show for this week. It's about music. <laughs> on occasion Craig Fitzpatrick enjoyed a pop concert how many more will he go to who knows I guess we'll find that out in the near future back soon with another episode my name is Dave Hanratty this has been No Encore there will be No Encore I hope you have a beautiful fucking Easter weekend goodbye
2: Right at home.
0: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress no glue press on manis and impress press on falsies lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom